you have to go through the breakdown sometime to get to the breakthrough. And it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage to, to hang in there. And it takes a lot of support. The future of dentistry belongs to the innovators. Welcome to Innovation in Dentistry. I'm your host, Sean Zayas, and I believe that the future of dentistry is going to be unbelievably great over the next decade and two decades, but the question isn't that. The question is, are you going to be part of what makes dentistry great? So today I have the honor of getting to be with Victoria Peterson. And I am just such a big fan. So this is going to be a ton of fun. Um, Victoria, if you guys don't know her, she is like, to say everything in dental, it's probably true. Like you went from being a dental professional to author, speaker, CEO, and now even an investor. Uh, let me welcome you. And then I'm going to set the stage for what we're about to talk about. So thank you so much for being here with me today, Victoria. Sean, it's such an honor. Thanks for the invitation. Okay, so to set the stage, I, I'm fascinated, Victoria, by what it is that causes um, dental professionals to all of a sudden feel that empowerment, that, that permission to pioneer and to step up and to step out. And often I preface this with innovation in dentistry. What, what type of innovation am I talking about? And I say I'm not really talking about clinical innovation or technological innovation. I'm really talking about those beliefs and mindsets that lead people to do great things. But to say that I'm not talking about technological or um, clinical innovation, it's like when you have that innovation or that breakthrough in your mindset and in your belief, it's what leads to those outward innovations that people see. Like you can't have one and not the other. So right now, I am so much more focused about people's story of struggle and how they overcame. Like right now, if someone could click their heels and be where Victoria Peterson is, they <laughs> I would not recommend it. <laughs> they, they would love to arrive at the destination. Right. But maybe they wouldn't have they wouldn't be able to endure the journey or the process. So uh, that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested to find out like how did you get to where you're at today? Oh my goodness. Um you know, reality is such a, a fluid thing for some of us. So we'd have to first define what the reality of where I am is, you know, but um, I would say that at my core, I am incredibly curious about what drives people, what motivates people. And I am a champion for the human spirit. And that has always been my cause. I can remember being uh, a young girl, you know, and contemplating these things. I can remember being six years old and thinking about the world. Now you got to remember this is 1968 when I'm six years old, your parents probably weren't a twinkle in the eye. So, um, and I can remember being in my bedroom, looking at the stars and thinking about time, thinking about then there's going to be 1969, 1970, 1972, I'll be 10 years old, 1982, I'll be 20 years old, 1992, I'll be 30 years old. So I'm something of a futurist and I used to belong to the World Future Society. So I love 
thinking about what's happening and more importantly, how do I impact my future by what I do today? That has been a curiosity since I was six years old. And I can remember after that night waking up, and we're in South Georgia, we're very Southern. We're in the Okefenokee Swamp, right? In 1968, you're going to just paint the picture of a dirt road farm where we have pigs and cows and horses and chickens. And I go to my mother and I go, Mama, what comes after 1999? And she's like, oh, I don't know. What are you talking about? Well, the year 1999, what comes after that? And she said, child, get out of here. I don't know what you're talking about. And I said, but there's going to be a year that comes after that. And she goes, well, I suppose it's 2000. So I was thinking about the year 2000 in 1968. And I was thinking about what's going to change in my lifetime. What's it going to be like? And so that curiosity and then uh, there was also a compassion and an innocence about me. So as a CEO, I'm not a hardcore driver. I am the, how do I help organize people into their highest and best so that I don't have to be hardcore authoritative. And I can remember also in that time, what influenced me was uh, desegregation. So, you know, the Black Lives Matters and all of the movements that we see today you know, I was experiencing as a young person in the 60s and 70s when the civil rights movements were in their height. And I can remember being in the Deep South where the black schools and the white schools integrated. And that happened when I was in third grade. And there were bomb threats and there were riots and there was a lot of, of uh, turmoil going on. But in that, what I remember is befriending the new kids in the school. And it was very upsetting to some of the parents. It was very upsetting to some of my white friends. Like, why are you holding hands with a little black girl? I, I held hands with everybody who had warts on their hands, who um, their physical features. Like, uh, I, I'm sure this uh, kid, Michael, had Down syndrome, but we didn't know what that was back then. So I was always befriending the underdog. And that's... So I'm in, so, you know, high school, all that. So I'm in student council and beta club and all the nerdy academic stuff. But I also hung out at, at lunch with the kids who were smoking pot. Like I had friends everywhere. I was a band nerd. I just am endlessly curious about why people do what they do. And, uh, you know, I, I yes, I've got judgment and all of that, but I really don't care how people show up. Like that's their journey. It's enough that I'm on my journey. Now, if their journey starts to hurt me or threaten my safety, I'm going to care a lot about it. But you want to be what you want to be, go be that because that's your journey. So I don't know if that's answering your question or not, but that is kind of the core of who I am is I'm endlessly curious about spirituality, the universe and what drives human nature. So Victoria, like I love... I love where you're at. I love that you've even been able to tie it to like beginning um, things that were sprouting up in your youth of like, this is kind of how I was wired and connecting it. Because I think when we're in alignment with like who we're called to be, so to speak, um, yeah. there, there's just that, that energy, that flow of like, you know, who we are, but there's also that sense of fulfillment because it's like, oh, I'm getting to express myself. I'm getting to be myself. 
Now that journey to discovering that it, it took you along somehow at some point you, you crashed into dentistry and were a hygienist, <laughs> but, but you didn't remain there. And not that there's anything wrong if you did, but it wasn't the beat in your head. It wasn't, it wasn't staying true to yourself. So like, what was that journey of a crashing into dentistry and, and then all of a sudden continuing on to doing what you're doing? Well, um, along with the endless curiosity, there is, you know, just this underlying type A personality, which I think a lot of us type A workaholics, um, for me, I can't speak for anybody else, but that's cultivated on a thread of trauma. So abuse, trauma, misunderstandings, things like that in youth, right? And so by the time I was 17, I was burned out. I was absolutely burned out. Um, which sounds crazy, right? But now you see all the social statistics of kids in high school that are depressed and suicidal and feeling the peer pressure and all of that. And I relate to that because that was happening back then. We just didn't have a social media platform to throw gasoline on it, right? And so uh, my first nervous breakdown, if you will, I was 17 years old and our band director, remember I was in band, I was this student conductor. So you got to picture this. I was in crushed blue velvet hot pants, like little short shorts in my majorette, uh, band major, um, you know, tails, you know, like the tuxedo tails and go-go boots. I wish I had a picture of this. It was stunning. I, and, I can picture everything but the go-go boots. <laughs> yeah, these go-go boots and the hat, you know, the whole thing. So I'm in charge of the band somewhat as a student director, but our leader had cancer and he didn't tell anyone. And he was going through chemo and radiation and he would come in with big memory gaps. Right. And so he was, I was just always getting in trouble with him because I was doing what he asked to do, but he would forget. And then he would humiliate me in front of the, the band. Right. And again, there's racial tensions. There's just all this cacophony of cultural stuff going on. And I remember the day that I snapped, I think I was playing the organ and he said, no one should be on the organ. You're not allowed. I ran out, I hit the door, the soundproof door so hard that it broke the glass in it. I went out to my mom's car. I'm beating the hood of the Lincoln Continental and they put me on Valium because that's what you do when you're 17. And I thought, you know, I can't, I can't keep being everything to everybody. That was the first time I woke up and said, I'm trying to please my parents. I'm trying to please the band director. I'm trying to please... Uh, you know, the FBLA, because I was the president of the FBLA. So I was president of everything. Like, I think a lot of us in entrepreneurs are born with a leadership thread. Uh, that's why we're entrepreneurs. We can't work for anybody else. <laughs> we gotta go. You're like that. I would work for somebody else, but I won't comply. So let me go make up a job and then go make it happen. So you've got that innate self-governance, that innate leadership. And I, I left. I left high school. I dropped it completely. I went to junior high, uh, junior college, which was 30 miles from our house. And I got my high school diploma, earning one credit in Americanism versus communism. And I knew my parents wouldn't let me do that without declaring a major. So I declared dental hygiene on a whim. And out of 400 applicants, a 17-year-old kid with no college credits got in. So I think that's a God thing because I I cried when I got the acceptance letter. I had no idea you could say no. So I went off to three years of hygiene school, always knowing that I wanted to go in business school. 
And I think the thing that saved me, the thing that really launched me, I launched it at age 17 because my parents uh, read, uh, my parents believed in me so much, like they saw that leadership and they enrolled me in this little course called Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And I still have my book. And so from the age of 17, you know, combining the sense of how do I help humanity? I love this diverse group of people. I hate seeing suffering in others. Now with this dental hygiene degree and these skills, these speaking skills, I thought one day I'm going to take a stage. But first, I need to figure out what I'm going to talk about. So I spent 15 years honing my clinical skills I had a strong um, small business background. My parents owned gas stations and U-Hauls and restaurants and all of this stuff. So we were always working. So I knew how to uh, balance a day sheet. I knew recare and reactivation because I was in charge of making sure everybody brought their car in every three months or 3,000 miles. I was calling people and scheduling all the things we do in dentistry. I had been doing as a high school kid and preparing for this. So I just needed time to season and figure out what I was going to talk about and then figure out who I wanted to help. Um, so my journey isn't, I don't know. I don't think it's that special. I don't think it's that extraordinary. I just took the next step. So, you know, up until age 18, I think we're just trying to survive whatever environment we're in because we don't have a lot of control over it. And those survival skills just said, be bold and take the next step. What is my best next step? And I just keep following whatever is in front of me of what can I do now with what I have? So it's crazy, Victoria, because as I'm hearing you speak, um, think about how many dental professionals you're talking to and, you know, they have that yearning or, or maybe some desire for more, but they're not, they're not sure how to kind of arrive at like who they are in a, the professional sense, they're not able to arrive at their own personal brand. And when you listen to someone that knows their personal brand, you're able to weave in and connect all the dots in pieces. And, <laughs> and, and obviously, you know, you're, you're a very spiritual connected person. And there's probably even more insights that are there that you haven't connected yet. But it's so amazing how much you've integrated who you are, your story, the 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 moments in your life that have led you to where you're at. Mm -hmm. um, so many people are so disconnected from that. That's why they're like, oh, I really, I really want to have a difference or I have this, this sense that I, I can do something else and there's, there's more to be expressed. But then you start asking, well, you know, like what, what in your life has either prepared you for this or set you up for this? And it's kind of like crickets, you know, what, what stories can you pull from? And yet, unless we actually connect our pain, our tragedies, mm. our triumphs, the, the, the ways in which we've been shaped, we're never going to find that authentic voice that only we have. And mm. it is such a strong belief of mine that like, I know dentistry is going to be great in the next 10 years. And what I encourage our listeners to is like, are you going to be part of what makes it great? Like you listener right now, like, are you going to step up and fill something? Because I feel like all of us are almost like, you know, in some, you could say we're, we're on the same army. We're on the same side trying to advance dentistry and we're, we're better when we're linking arms, but there's some places in the ranks where someone's not occupying it because yeah. they haven't owned who they are yet. 
And none of us are competing for that light because we all shine a certain light that only we can shine. And that's what I love about you is you have this sense of authenticity, of purpose, of intentionality, and that presence. Anytime, any, anyone that meets you just gets overwhelmed by that sense of security. No, for real. Like when, when I met you, I was like, wow. I remember you sat down. Um, it was Smiles at Sea, April 21. And it was one of those almost like um, meet and greet. The vendor stayed still. And then like the investors or whatever will go around. And you sat across from me. And Oh, I remember I could, that. That was in the pre-conference networking. It yes. It was. I'd, yeah. I'd never met you before. You you slid your you know business card across. And I just remember, again, the presence that you carried. You you were aligned. You knew who you were. And yet you you carry your strength with such a humility. Um, so I want to honor you with that. Now, Victoria, a- along that journey, was there a mindset that you realized you had to shed in order to kind of embrace who you were even more? Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, for me, maturing in any aspect of your life, be it uh, in your leadership and your parenting and your who you are in your spirituality, all of that, it's a process of letting go. And I think that was one of the big, I didn't learn that lesson until I was in my fifties. Now, menopause, you won't get to experience that, Sean, but menopause teaches women a lot about letting go. That's literally the process. We're letting go of a big part of our identities and things like that. So uh, you talk about looking, you talk about connecting the dots on who you are and reflecting. Reflection really comes, uh, you don't know um, how you did something until you turn around and connect the dots. So I think that's where age has an advantage on youth that doesn't have a lot of experience yet to turn around. But each of you can turn around and say, well, what did spark me to success? And if you get out of this mind space of right or wrong, good or bad, and oh my God, they so you know did this to me. When Once you get out of that mind frame of the world or these people did something to me, and then you understand that happened for me. You know, if you're alive today, you walked on glass, right? You, you, so all of us have struggled in some way and it shaped who we are. And, you know, there's way too many movies telling us you can't go back in time and change it because you would have a different thing for where you are today. So, um, I love that you brought that up, that, um, your reality is the accumulation of your choices and your experiences you went through. And, um, you know, I've, I'm living uh, full-time now in the big island of Hawaii. Now, you got to think, I, I started in the Okefenokee Swamp. The house I grew up in is still on a dirt road. My 23 first cousins, my 42nd cousins, I've got fifth cousins. Nobody moves out of a 20-mile radius. Yet I moved from there to Atlanta, to uh, Anacortes, Washington, to Hawaii. Like, I'm a nomad in that aspect. And here in Hawaii, they have a phrase, dance where your feet are right? Make a change where your feet are. You know, like I I see a lot, especially young speakers and consultants and, and people who want to be key influencers. They're like, I'm changing the world. And I'm like, awesome. How are you going to change your world? And how are you going to change the world of your family, 
And then how you change the world of your friends? How do you change the world of your clients? How do you change the world in your small slice of it? Because there are billions of people in this world. And I just love that phrase. We may not be able to change the world, but we can change the whole world for just one person. So I, that is when I'm remembering that it helps me to be present. And when I'm present, then you're in your power. So work where your feet are, work where you're planted. Um, destiny, feel like, uh, I will also say Tony Robbins was a huge influence on my life. Um, again, Dale Carnegie and Wayne Dyer and those in my, you know, teens and early twenties when I was, um, let's see, it's going to be 1992. I was introduced to Tony Robbins. So I was 30. He was about 32. He was just getting started. And by the time I, I was 35, I was working in a Tony Robbins company. So I've done the date with destiny. I've done the fire walks. I've, I've studied NLP and things like that. And through it, one of the things I had to shed was my story. I had to shed my story of trauma. I had to shed my story of abuse. I got to look at it and then rewrite the story. And I think that's the deep inner work. If you're going to lead yourself and others, the leaders I know that are truly successful and happy and balanced and all of that, they've done the deep inner work. Um, you can tell once you do the inner work, you can tell those that are wearing the mask and pretending to themselves who they are and what they're trying to do. So it's not a journey of changing the world. It's a journey of changing your world. And then the gifts flow out. Everybody has unique medicine. Everybody has unique gifts. So just let that come out. It sounds so esoteric, but you know. No, it <laughs> I love it. Um, my mind, I'm just trying to like process everything because there's so much of what you're, you're saying that is just so profound, Victoria. Um, I know, like I remember talking to uh, Tanya Lanthier of Dental Post. And, mm -hmm. um, she grew up and her mom, something about her mom she had some sort of um, disorder, and I don't know if I had to do with like some crazy perfectionism she expected of her children. And Tonya was able to say, my mom gave me a gift with her issue, with her disease. It wasn't something she plagued me with. It was something she gave me a gift because now I have extraordinary patience or now I, I learned this. So it's completely right. It's like we all have traumas. Right. and tragedies and low parts and a lot of the times we're we're almost trying to like disconnect that from who we are like <laughs> no that's not me I, i'm running from it. it it's shame and it's like well no there's actually gold there because well that's the maturing process you know um oh my gosh um yeah my brother won't hear this podcast so we'll go there <laughs> yeah like alcoholism runs deep on both sides of my family. Like a, a lot of us, you know, that's just society, how we cope with things. Right. And I brought him to live with me one time and he was like really out of control. I had to call the cops. I had to do all this stuff. And I'm, I'm calling all the hotlines. Like, how do I get help? And I called this one hotline and this old Vietnam vet answers the phone. And I'm like, oh my God, and what do I do? And he's so out of control and I've got kids and blah, blah, blah. And I can't send them back. And, and he's like, look, I don't know you, but I'm just going to tell you, there's only two types of people. There's, there's victims and there's volunteers. So as hard as this sounds, 
everything you just described, you have volunteered for. So I don't see that you're a victim here. You need to just, you know, suck it up, buttercup, and make some choices. If this person is threatening you and your kids, then send them back. You know what? Drunks love to be drunks. He's going to be happy hanging out with drunks, and you need to be okay with that. Otherwise, you're bending over backwards to have him change when he doesn't want to. And so, you know, growing up in that environment, I wanted, because in my household, I mean, again, we're in the deep South, corporal punishment. One kid was in trouble, you're all in trouble. So as the middle child, I spent my life making sure that nobody ever got in trouble for anything. I did my older brother's homework. I did my younger sister's homework. I didn't know at the time that she was dyslexic. I just knew she couldn't spell. So I would correct all her papers. I would, I would give him the answers to, he would, he would get my school schedule and then he would sign up for the exact classes. One class after mine, beat me up, get my homework, steal the test answers, the whole bit. So I, I don't even know why I'm telling you. I don't know that this would help a soul, but we all, if you're in dentistry, you're somewhat OCD. You're somewhat perfectionistic. You're so, you're precise, like precision that drives us to be able to remove tartar and calculus in a 15 millimeter pocket while not an anesthetizing people, right? So your gentle touch doing this heroic thing if you can do endo, like the attention span that it takes to file a root canal, right? Like we are OCD, we hyper-focus. That was cultivated somewhere early on because that is not typically a natural human experience. Like when we're mentally healthy and left to our own devices, you know, we're, we're, we're doing other things than, than, you know, worrying about how many times I turned the light switch on and off. And did I check the doors three times and all of those things that we, we fun creatures in dentistry do. You know? So you're also sharing the story because it's in those moments that are unique to us that we can find gold where there's yeah. the greatest transformation. Yeah. It's like, you know, maybe there's parts of the family that were given, <laughs> <laughs> that we, we sometimes look at God and go, why? <laughs> like, why, why them? Uh, I, it's a really bad joke, but you know, my mom went through um, some really difficult times as she was battling cancer. And after four years, you know, she didn't, she didn't end up winning that battle. And I just remember like with my brother joking, like, God, you could have taken my uncle. Like, you know, like why my mom? <laughs> like, you know, cause we all have those, that, that weird what? uncle that you're like, hasn't everybody said that? You know, but you have those weird people that are like not living a good life. It doesn't seem like yeah. they're contributing at all. And yet they still seem like they're in good health. They're trucking along. And then there's that person that's blessing everyone's life and enriching and they die young. And you're like, oh, uh, makes sense, right? Yeah. God needed another angel. Uh, yeah, we, we could get into that path, but that, that would be a whole different podcast. But that is the also the other thread of my motivation is life is short. Um, again, I don't know all these seeds. I think for most of us, it's planted in our early twenties. I had two boyfriends in high school. One got killed by a drunk driver. The other one got killed in a pulp mill accident. And then by the time I was 22, I thought I should not even fall in love. And I did, uh, with a university professor and we were married and two years later he died. So I'm widowed by the time I'm 25. And I was like, 
self-worth was just really low for a long time. There's, there was a lot of things to overcome. So I appreciate that. Like you meet me in my fifties and you go, wow, she's a really cool lady. Look at that. She's integrated. It takes the work to, you know, so the wounds open our hearts. I don't know if you've ever looked at Japanese pottery uh, or, or porcelain, but if it cracks or breaks, they put it back together and they fill it with gold and ruby and stones. And so it takes so much courage. And um, one of my mentors shared the phrase, success requires support. And I'll tell you that every rung of life, as I've elevated up, I have sought out surrounding myself with support. And what happens is your heart cracks open, your brain cracks open, you melt, you puddle. And then if you have the courage to surround yourself with support, the healing comes and the healing comes in with this beautiful layer of gold, this river of gold where that, that track was down. So I needed to be cracked open. I was a little hard headed. I'm a little stubborn, you know, so I don't hit the easy button. Life has to literally take a two by four to my forehead and say, wake up, wake up. And then going through that pain, you always, I have, I've got this phrase, break, breakthrough is always on the other side of breakdown. And I use it a lot. You have to go through the breakdown sometime to get to the breakthrough. And it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage to, to hang in there. And it takes a lot of support. And that support might mean, you know, instead of taking a big vacation, I'm going to hire a housekeeper who comes twice a week and does laundry and helps me with the kids. It's going to be, I am not a bad mother if I have someone else pick my kids up from school or soccer. Like uh, women, especially in dentistry, women leaders, we put too much on ourselves to be the perfect wife, the perfect mother, the perfect provider. And there's just no such thing. And this mom guilt, I like Jesus, that's really real. That is really real. Um, we we just put so much on ourselves. So you know what? Get a therapist, get on antidepressants, do ketamine treatments, meditate, do yoga, take retreats, do whatever you take. And I think post-pandemic, the level of support that we need as highly focused professionals uh, it takes a lot of brain power. We're 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 burning a lot of glucose mentally every day. If we don't find a way to replenish our batteries, we burn out. And I'm seeing that higher than ever. You know, I've been in dentistry a long time. Burnout's always been there, but post pandemic, it's off the charts. It's off the charts. So my compassion is rising. You know, you had asked me in a pre interview. You know. How do I want to innovate dentistry? And um, I'm doing that through this platform we call investment grade practice because true wealth comes in the form of peace of mind. It comes in the form of genuine relationships. It comes in the form of contribution and giving back. And the feelings come first and then the money or the material comes second. And so in this quest of creating financial freedom and building a business that's truly of value, then you have the latitude to do more of those things that bring you peace of mind and connected relationships and contributions to the community. So it's this beautiful upward spiral of 
identify and feel the feelings that you want to feel because that's your source. Your job is not your source of wealth. It's source. It's, it's spirit. It's God. It's Maya. It's prana. It's, you know, whatever you want to call that. Um, that's the source. So feel the feeling, get the frequency of it. And then you start manifesting the pathway to the financial freedom. And then once you get the financial freedom, how are you being a good steward of that? So um, that's what I want to help innovate is this concept of sacred commerce and sacred economics where we, we have, we don't take people out of the equation. You know, people are at the center of the, their hearts are at the center of the equation. They're at the center of our business. I, I think that's beautiful. And I love what you're doing with investment grade practices. Um, you know, one of my beliefs around money is just that like it reveals, it just magnifies kind of what's already inside. So if you, mm -hmm. if, if someone that, is already going to be really giving and caring and wants to make a difference, has more money, they're just going to make a bigger impact. Right. You know, if someone's very self-focused, you give them more money, they're just going to continue to be self-focused, you know? Um, now, Victoria, you see a lot of different practices um, and dentists because they're wanting to work with you either through investment-grade practices or through Productive Dentist Academy. Are there any mindsets that you're hearing as people want to work with you where you're like, okay, um, either this dentist is going to be a little bit harder to work with because they're not really mature yet, or they're not really ready. Or when I hear this mindset, I'm like, oh my gosh, let's go, baby. This is like the perfect you know, <laughs> practice. Yeah. Um, gosh, it's easy to put labels on people and things, and that's probably a disservice. Uh, but what I will say is that you have an easier time when you allow support. So again, leadership and growing in your leadership is the art of letting go, which means you have to cultivate the ability to receive. So those people that we coach who have the ability to receive do really well. So uh, let's put it in practical terms. Uh, if you are a micromanager and you do everything because you don't trust your team, right? And I meet a lot of doctors like that. You have to cultivate this piece within yourself that it's okay to receive support. And again, through dental school, through the academic journey, you are subconsciously taught, don't trust anybody because you're in competition with them, right? Your GPA is what's going to get you into the you know, your GPA and undergrad is going to get you in the grad school, which is going to get you in dental school, which is going to get you in your general practice residency. You know, it's highly competitive to get there and it's highly competitive uh, and it's comparative. So you learn to count on yourself and you don't understand that humans aren't designed to do it all. Like we need others. And so in delegation there, when they have the mindset of how do I, um, how do I create such clear role descriptions and projects and priorities? It's like a gift to our team. It's one of the number one reasons people leave dentistry is because they perceive that there's no vertical movement. 
right? I'm a hygienist. I'm always a hygienist. I'm going to be a hygienist. I'll make a little bit more next year than I made this year, but it's kind of a repetitive job. I'm, I'm just a dental assistant. I'm just a scheduler. I'm just a receptionist. You hear that all the time. And I think that's what's sparking a lot of the blackmail. And if you're, if you're a dental team member, I'm just going to say right out, you are blackmailing your freaking doctor right now at, you know, Two years ago, I would have worked for 25 bucks an hour. Now I'm working for 35 bucks an hour and I'm leaving you because somebody will pay me 40 bucks an hour. So it's supply and demand. And I don't, don't fault, uh, you know, if you're on your career path, but consider this, what value am I willing to give for that $40 an hour? I work with doctors who pay really well. Their hygienists are making 100, 150 grand a year, but they give a ton of value. So being a leader and allowing your team to help you, you've got to cultivate trust. You've got to cultivate respect. You have to cultivate uh, measurable skill sets and you've got to be willing to take a stand. So those leaders who say, this is my philosophy of care. This is what I stand for in my business. This is what I stand for in my practice will you join me in the journey? And I think that's the difference in today's uh, talent wars and today's economy. In the 80s, you could just say, my way or the highway, you're on the bus, you're off the bus, get the hell out of here. And employees would comply. But today there's so much choice that it is an it is get really clear about who you are. And most of us can't do that without coaching. It takes someone like you or me or those with coaching skills to just sit down with compassion and actively listen and say, oh, did I just hear you say that this was important to you? And they go, yeah, oh, that is important. Let's make a note of that. So really crafting the key characteristics of how you want your team to show up, um, cultivating the core value that you'd go to the wall for, cultivating your standard of care. Um, I'll ask doctors, What's your standard of perio, periodontal therapy? And they'll go, well, that depends. I go, on what? And they go, on on which hygienist is working? Because Peggy won't probe and Martha's kind of young and she's a little more progressive. And I tried to hire this one hygienist, but she was really oral systemic and, and nobody liked her. So I'm like, so what's your standard? He goes, well, it depends. And so that's the one that's hard to coach when you don't know your own standard then the team is confused and they don't know where you're really going. So you got to take a stand on what you believe. Um, if you look at the American Dental Association standard of care, there's a great big book on it and it's like 353 pages that says, uh, how often should you take x-rays? When do you do this? When do you do that? 350 pages is saying, uh, the decision on this is up to a licensed professional dentist. Like there really is no standard of care there. It's so wide, you know, amalgam to e extract an implant. That's all a viable plan for a tooth with a hole in it. So what do you stand for? So I know you're, you're not talking about clinical innovations, but it's clarity. The job of a leader is to be clear. So those who are clear, those are willing to do the work to become clear then we can help them articulate that to their team. And I had a doctor just this last week. He was just tell me what to do. 
just tell me what to do. And I said, well, I could do that, but then it would be my practice. It wouldn't be your practice. So uh, Reagan Robertson, whom you know, she's our uh, chief communications officer. She came up with this brilliant formula for decision-making. And she said, data plus emotion equals decisive action. So if you're, if you're stuck in making decisions as a leader, go back and say, do I have all the data? Where could I get, where could I become more informed on this subject? What do I need to ask of my team? What reports should I pull? Should I bring in someone to take a look? So get the data, but then marry that with, what do I want to feel? Like when this happens, you know, do you want to feel that peace of mind? Do you want to feel success? Do you want to feel accomplishment? You know, what is that that's driving this need for change? When you marry those two things together, the answers on what to do next is so clear. And maybe take a take a 30-day challenge with us, Shauna, and you text me and Reagan and see how that shows up in your life. I think it would be really interesting. I will absolutely do that. Now I'm on the record. Um, <laughs> he just said it, Reagan. <laughs> so, Victoria, when you were even painting that picture, though, of the practice where the dentist maybe is a little controlling and micromanaging and maybe everyone on the team, you know, feels like there's really no vertical movement. Um, like I could imagine as a patient showing up in a practice like that, there's not going to be this culture that's unified that comes through of like this really great team that has this mm -hmm. energy of like th this synergy that can come from we're in it together we're making beautiful outcomes together. And I guess at the root of that, I'm also seeing that like maybe the dentist just has a lot of fear, you know, like what happens if I let go? What happens if I don't micromanage? What happens if I let them buy into the vision and am a little more vulnerable with the way that I lead? Um, and, and I noticed because dentists aren't typically entrepreneurs, um, and I think you probably identified yourself as an entrepreneur, maybe even earlier than I did. You know, it was one of those journeys for me of like, okay, I, I guess this is who I am. This is why I'm wired the way that I am. But I, I've, I still sympathize with dentists that maybe don't have the right view on, on failure or on taking risks because it's like, well, failure clinically means lawsuits, right? It, it could, like it, it's scary, but failure in the business sense is the quickest way to actually arrive at what works <laughs> like yeah you've got to fail fast and fail forward um, oh, so is that something quoting john maxwell i love that is, is that something that you run into a lot where just fundamentally the mindsets of like these dentists they're just not typically entrepreneurial um and you're having to like educate them on it's okay to step out and, and that's kind of why i even want to tell people stories because so much of the great people that i get to interview they have tragedies. They yeah. have, they have the times where they're in those, like that dark night of the soul, those valleys where they're like, they're not sure they're going to make it, but they inevitably do. They dig down deep, they find something and they come out of it. And it's like, they realize the only failure would have been if they didn't try. Yeah. You know, when I began consulting, it was, it was just out of sheer need. I was a dental hygienist. I was working four days a week. I loved being a hygienist. I loved my boss. I loved everything about it. I had just given birth to my second child. Both of my kids were preemies. 
They were 17 months apart. I had spent, can you imagine this, 14 weeks on bed rest Gosh. <laughs> with no internet. This was pre-internet. And I lost my glasses. I couldn't even read. And I am not, you probably picked up on this. I'm not knit little booties, you know, and make cupcakes kind of mom. So back then, pre-internet, I I sent off to the University of Denver for a mail order course on financial planning. Because I thought if I'm going to help my doctors, I need to know more about financial planning. And I was trying to set up some kind of IRA for my husband's business. And I was not liking the answers I was getting from my Merrill Lynch broker. So all I had was a push button phone and time. And I kept calling and calling and calling Merrill Lynch. And I was like, well, who's your boss? Well, who's your boss? I don't think your answer is right. I think my answer is right. And so I kept calling until I got a senior vice president in New York, like on Wall Street. He's up on probably the 32nd floor and he's answering, hi, I'm Vicky. And I just want to know with, uh, you know, a, some, a SEP, I don't even know what it was, a SEP IRA. If my husband has part-time employees in his photography business, can we put a waiting period of three years before they vest into this? And he's like, who is this? <laughs> and how did you get my number? Right. And I said, well, that doesn't matter. What matters is, can I do that? And he goes, well, of course you can do that. And I said, okay, here's my broker's number in Atlanta. Can you call him and tell him? Because I have gone five times around and around and he won't set it up this way. So I'm there bossing, you know, Merrill Lynch around. And in that moment, I thought, well, you know, this isn't going to be too tough to figure out. So I sent off to the University of Denver's financial planning. So I spent three months studying investing and stocks and insurance. I was sitting for my series three exam, you know, and I, and I woke up and I went, I do not want to invest anybody else's money. That is not who I am. So I kind of stopped all that nonsense. So my path of growth, again, it's data, it's skill set, hone your skills, then you've got the confidence. So every dentist, uh, if I had to speak to the owners, I would say, learn these skills. Go on Udemy, go to Coursera, take a finance for non-finance majors class, take a basic accounting and bookkeeping class, go take some QuickBooks classes, understand how your financials come together. That is probably the smartest piece of advice I could give any business owner um, because I see it every single day. I start every client with, let me see your P&L and your balance sheets. And they're like, well, my book, my CPA hasn't gotten it to me yet for this year. I'm like, it's May. Yeah, they're a little behind on their quarterlies. And so please hear me well. Your CPA works for you. Yep. You do not work for your CPA. So when I say success requires support, then you need to be supported with people who are experts in their field. So you can expect, and there are people doing this today, you can expect that your P&L is on your desk no later than the 10th of every month, that your bank balance is reconciled to the penny, that you know your EBITDA, you know your earnings, you know your net profits. Without that data, you cannot run your business. So I personally think dentists are extremely entrepreneurial. I think they're great business owners. Uh, you compare them to restaurant owners who go out of business every three years, right? We sustain practices for 15, 20, 30 years. Dentists are amazing entrepreneurs. It's the most stable industry 
in America. That's why private equity is here. What they are, though, is unarmed with good information. So they're in this emotional spin of fear because they're relying on people that they don't know how to hold them accountable. So take a finance class, take an accounting class, listen to podcasts about creating wealth. That's number one. Number two, talk to Dentrix or Open Dental or whoever. There are security features in there that only the practice owner can, can research. So you are a trusted person that's not your team, do audit trail reports, find out if your team is embezzling. I mean, the nicest people on your team, the most loyal people on your team are probably the ones who are going to rip you off. And I love dental teams. I've been a dental team member for 40 years, but you open your hearts and you open your practice and you open your bank accounts to people that you've not vetted. So you've got to learn. And this is, this is in my book. There's a whole chapter on how do you vet your professionals because you deserve support. You deserve unbiased, honest, without agenda advice. Did I get passionate about that or what? It just, it drives me nuts. Well, so this is the thing I, I want, and you might've just answered this, but you have a very unique perspective on the future of dentistry being that, you know, you run a practice management company, you do investment, great practices, you you podcast, you're networked with so many people, like you're a CEO, like, um, based off the future you see, like, I'd love for you to share about the future you see, but also what is it based off that future that you think dentists need to embrace so that they're going to be more prepared for what is coming? Yeah. Right now we're in what they call consolidation curve and every fragmented market consolidates Uh, mom and pop dime stores, right? Consolidated into Walmart and Kmart's and things like that. Pharmaceuticals, the little mom and pop pharmacies. We still have some compounding pharmacists, but not a lot, right? They, they consolidated into CVS and Walgreens and things like that. So dentistry is on the consolidation curve. It began in the 90s. Uh, Heartland Dental is probably, you know, the biggest icon out there. Um, So that's happening. We are about 30, 35% consolidated right now. It's not going to go away. You know, in the beginning, and you can see the adoption curve in the beginning, corporates were evil and all of that. Uh, I owned and created Neighborhood Smiles, which is now a network of 16 practices. Uh, So I created it from scratch in Wisconsin, got it up to about six practices, and then sold it to my partner. I went in it specifically knowing that I was going to bring the banking and the business acumen and practice management so that this young dentist could take it and move on. And I sold for an 11X multiple and I was pretty happy. And now he's got 16 practices to worry about. So I've been in that space of growing a group. I know that space. And we, over the course of the next seven years, so think about it, by 2030, the landscape of dentistry totally shifts. Maybe it's 2035, right? These crystal balls aren't, don't have exact landing precision. So what that means is there's opportunity right now. Private equity is in dentistry because it's stable and because they see dentists as great leaders and they see that practices who can throw off a profit, we call that EBITDA, earnings before interest, depreciation, taxes, and amortization. When you, when you can do that at a rate of 15% or more, then your practice sells in a whole different way 
than if your profits are less than 15%. So less than 15%, less than a million dollars, you're going to sell to another dentist. And you're probably going to sell at 65 to 85%. So if it's a million dollar practice, you'll sell from 650 to 850. If you really have amazing equipment team and processes and you're about 10 or 11, 12% profitable, maybe you get the full million, maybe you'll get a million one. All right. So in that same scenario, say that the million dollars, you had 250,000 in net profits and you've got five operatories. I mean, there's some standards here, right? But instead of selling on percentage of collections, you're going to sell on uh, multiple of EBITDA. Minimally, that would probably be five right now. Instead of selling for 850, you'd sell for 1.25. So there's a $400,000 difference wow. based on whether your net profits are 12% versus 16%. So dentists love shiny objects. They go to trade shows. They buy crap they don't need. They overpay their team. They, they just waste money. So it really shifted into what is my bottom line? What is my bottom line? The other thing that you're seeing is a mass exodus from PPO plans like never before. It used to be, should I? And maybe I shouldn't. Now it's like, I don't care. I, I can't take a 40% write-off. And, um, and we help dentists all the time. The challenge with a 40% write-off is that your overhead, like you've got a staff for that 1.4 million, you've got to buy supplies at that 1.4 million, you've got to buy labs at 1.4 million, but you only have a million dollars to pay for it. So all your overhead is artificially driven up with that kind of write-off. So I'm seeing that there's opportunity when you pay attention to the bottom line there is opportunity to get off the PPOs. Uh, people are doing it every single day now. Whereas before, like five years ago, it was like, well, I'm stuck with it. Um, this opportunity is going to shift and it'll revert back. But for today, pay attention to that. When consolidation finishes in five, seven, eight years, there'll still be 30% of the market that's independent. So... Solo doctors, groups, you'll see a lot of independent groups, small groups and things like that. So I think this is actually the best time to be an owner. I'm seeing a lot of associate doctors exit DSOs and start their own practices. They're very, this new generation is very entrepreneurial. So I think there's a lot of hope in that. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, potential in functional medicine coming into dentistry. We're seeing a lot of sleep apnea is mainstreaming, myofunctional therapy and airway is mainstreaming. So we're, we're bridging that into wellness spas. So the, the, I worked in a holistic dental practice back in the eighties and everybody thought we were freaks. Today it's, it's mainstream. Like holistic is just becoming best practice. So I, I think it's the best time to be an owner. I think there are a few small shifts that you can make to improve your profit margins, and it really helps you take decisive action as a leader. It all kind of plays together. So this is the perfect segue of um, what it is that you're doing, um, because if I'm a listener right now and I'm hearing about all this and I'm hearing that you're doing investment-grade practices, like how, how, do I, 
how do I become part of this, Victoria? <laughs> you know, because and it's not just investment grade; it's also PDA. So, just tell our listeners a little bit about what you're doing, uh, those services, and how they can even contact you to be part of that. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, Productive Dentist Academy is a partnership between myself and Dr. Bruce Baird uh, out of Granbury, Texas. Uh, and our employees. We are a 30% owned uh, ESOP company. So we're an employee owned company. Uh, we, we made that decision in 2019 as part of our exit strategy because we want this content to continue. Coming out of the pandemic, what we realized is that doctors didn't have a problem being productive. Like they're swamped with patients. It is how do I how do I kind of tame the abundance? We went into challenges of abundance. So what I was seeing is although practices were busy, they weren't any more sellable than they were before. And back in 2015, I started doing a, a little breakout session called Building an Investment Grade Practice, which talked about these key components of organizing your financial life, understanding that piece, um, organizing your marketing, understanding the ROI of your marketing and what your message is making sure that you've optimized all the systems of scheduling and reactivation and accounts receivables, things like that. And now the new one is developing your cultural North star. And we've always had like team agreements and things like that. There's a huge um, yearning from team members to say, let's build a culture together. And we've developed processes around that. We're actually doing um, you know how you get a net promoter score with patients leaving you a five-star review? We, yeah. now, we now do that for employers. Do you rank a five-star review on Indeed and Glassdoor? What do your employees say about you wow. as an employer? Awesome. So we've got a whole new program under the investment grade practice umbrella of what, how employable is your company? And that's what really is the way we write role descriptors, the way we write job ads, the way we're doing videos to attract assistants and hygienists and associates to the practice. These are the kind of innovative things that it takes to be the number one employer dentist in your area. So those four components like business assets, practice management, marketing, and culture come together to create the investment grade practice platform. So you can hear more about it on my podcast. We talk about these things. I interview a lot of people on wealth management and dentists who have broken through to create this. Um, you can also come to one of our workshops in Dallas. Uh, we see you there quite often. So our uh, next productive dentist uh, and workshop and IGP summit are in September in Dallas. So you can go to ProductiveDentist.com and find out about all of those things. That is amazing. Okay, so I'm about to close, but before I do, uh, just in the spirit of honor, who would you like to honor as an innovator um, just in your life? And it could be in the industry. Oh, there's so many in the industry. We would be here for another 30 minutes. Uh, I'm going to honor my dad. I'm going to honor my dad. Um, I come from a family of auto mechanics and, uh, you know, my dad could have just stayed in his shop, turning wrenches and all of that. But he, um, he, he saw that the I-95 interstate was coming along on the East coast. He, uh, took on the Gulf. Uh, I don't even know if Gulf service stations are still around, but he, he bought the franchise for the Gulf service station. So he was bold in that way. 
he became a school teacher, high school teacher, and taught shop. And a lot of those shop kids worked in the gas station. So that was very synergistic. But on his business card, and I still have one, it says uh, Dinkins Automotive Services. We put the serve in service. And that has been a mantra that has really served me well. And he really was innovative in that time because we were going into self-service gas stations. And even though it was self-service, he still provided the service for free. And that's my mantra is, what would you do if everything was equal and all things were free? How would you put the serve in service? Oh, wow. Okay. So hopefully that didn't answer this last question, uh, but it might have, <laughs> but if not, so, so here, here it is. Uh, Victoria of today sees Victoria at 17 years old in the distance. And you know, you're going to walk past her and have one moment just to communicate a sentiment. Mm. What would you communicate to her? I would say, don't worry so much. You got this kid. <laughs> I wish somebody had told me that when I was 17. <laughs> I absolutely love this. Just, just even the idea of like, you've got this. It's almost like you're going to be okay. Yeah. Like let, let go of the anxiety, let go of the worry. And that's exactly kind of that message to the listeners today. It's like, you want to step out and you want to get your practice ready for, an, you know, to be an investment grade practice like step up. It's going to be okay. Like you're not going to regret taking that step. You're going to regret in five or 10 years. If you look back and you're like, well, I could have done it. Maybe, maybe I could have done it, but you didn't do it. I was, so I never felt prepared to take the next step when I leaped. But once you leap, once you leap, um, you know, have the faith that the resources will come up around you. I've never once felt 100% certain about anything I've ever done. So I do the research and I do an 80% head, heart, and gut check. If I'm at 80%, I can live with 20% uncertainty. So I take the leap, not, and then, and then the fun begins. And then the fun begins. <laughs> well, Victoria, it has been an absolute honor. It is, it's just easy to honor you as an innovator, as a leader, as someone that really is pioneering in dentistry and making such a big difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for all the times in your journey that you didn't give up and that you continued to just lean in, continued to overcome and continue to to believe because I love where you're at and what you're doing. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Sean. And thank you for all that you're doing to innovate dentistry. Thank you. Thanks for listening and be sure to follow so you never miss an episode. To learn more about what's going on in dentistry, check out innovationindentistry.com.